Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknesum. Chris, how are you doing this Sunday afternoon? I'm doing very well, David. I uh, I did uh, the the serious inspection of the new house with the general right. contractor. I met some more of the neighbors, and I really dig them. And I found out that in addition to the very obvious number of bunnies, coyotes, therefore hawks, which are very visible, an absolutely huge population of bighorn sheep, uh, which are you know quite uh, visible day to day. There is mm. also um, a female female mountain lion in the vicinity, and I'm really hoping to catch sight of her. There was uh, an unfortunate incident where some idiots in uh, the district of Vegas called Summerlin, which is way around the northwest, uh, they actually shot a mountain lion, and I think they should be shot. But everybody yeah. around my new place is just, you know, wanting to uh, really savor and protect this, this beautiful spirit because mountain lions, man... I don't know. Animals don't come more beautiful than that. No, or uh, more frightening. I've been on a few... My aunt used to live in a gated community in Colorado, and I took her dog for a walk a few times, and she would casually say, uh, watch out for mountain lions. And I thought, oh, that seems... I mean, it's, it's fine advice, I suppose, but I'm not really <laughs> sure what I would do if I saw one. Oh, goodness, that, like... Once you see one, it feels like it's it's too late. But uh, yeah, no, I think that they're great. I wish that I lived in a place that had more of that kind of wildlife, especially sheep. I'm a big sheep fan. I find I, I feel like they're very zen animals. Oh, they, they are. Uh, they are, and they hang out in this uh, park, uh, municipal park, which is about a half mile below my new place. And they're there in numbers, so you get to see their whole family dynamic, which is really, really powerful. And it's this beautiful analog to the family, the human family dynamic of this, this much-used park. And it's just a good, I mean, if you did a time-lapse film there, it would be this beautiful sort of intersection of, of two different species, very, both very social and communal. Uh, really getting along perfectly, you know? Mm -hmm. One of the uh, coziest books that I read a few years ago was called The Shepherd's Life. I think it was a National Book Award winner or something like that. Uh, I can't remember the name of the author, but yeah, it's essentially about a, a shepherd in the Scottish Highlands and his kind of day-to-day -day philosophical musings as he tends to his herd. And I thought, well, that just... There seem to be people who have figured out exactly what they're going to do with their time, and I admire that, but I also really like sheep, so it's kind of a twofer. Yeah, I, I, I raised uh, Suffolk sheep for a time in Australia, and I really enjoyed them. Uh, it got hard when the drought hit, and my wife at the time, in her good-heartedness, uh, offered them some alfalfa, which is, you know, about 10 times, you know, the normal cost of any feed 
uh, originally they were just you know eating the the grass. They were you know hired lawnmowers, you know. Right. Um, right. And Suffolk sheep, for people who don't know, have those beautiful black faces, and they're very stout. They're kind of like rotund women in sweaters. Um, <laughs> and we hired in a, a ram named appropriately Mr. Balls. Um, <laughs> he was very frisky and frolicky, and, and we suspected he was gay because of his behavior. Uh -huh. But he took all the gals down under the big pine tree, which an escaped black whaler in the gold rush era, so we're talking the 1850s, very similar to the, the California gold rush period. Uh, he had escaped from the wharves uh, from this Baltimore whaler and had gone north to uh, try to make his fortune in the gold fields and, and that didn't really work out. But he, on Abraham Lincoln's uh, death, planted this pine tree, which has since grown enormously. And Mr. Balls would take the girls down there in the evening and he, he knocked them all up and all of them twinned. All of them twinned. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Are there homosexual sheep? You know, I don't think so. But if you had seen him prancing around, you'd have thought, well, he's in touch with another side of his, you know, his character. His gender unicorn was working for him. Right, um, right. But I, I love sheep, too. I think there's something. And it's interesting what, you know, the, the um, you know, we often say that, you know, the a cornerstone moment of the human adventure was that shift from the hunter-gatherer society to agricultural society but the pastoral society is in the middle it's agricultural but it's it's raising mm -hmm. you know domesticated animals and you think about mm -hmm. the enormous contribution to to poetry and religious meditation and spiritual meditation that the pastoral movement uh has created you know, because here are these people, you know, alone, oftentimes alone in the wild, but with these animals in their charge, they were watching the stars, you know, we see this, mm -hmm. you know, in so many, not just the Christian tradition, but all the major religions, that that contemplative experience of being involved with, uh, you know, being a good shepherd, what a beautiful, mm -hmm. it's hard to escape that as a great metaphor, you know. Mm -hmm. A great, you know, being a good shepherd, you know. So, absolutely. okay, yeah, absolutely. Well, that was I loved hearing about Mr. Balls. That's one of my favorite <laughs> No Country openings. Now we should have Mr. Uh -huh. Balls as the mascot for the show. Um, Jeez, he was dragging him. I got to tell you, he they were bouncing behind. He was just, <laughs> I don't know. And when oh. he would kick up his heels and you know dance around you just think my god okay there you go <laughs> yeah. i know there are gay pigs and gay giraffes those are the two species i know that have homosexual uh, uh creatures but um on that note talking about gay sheep uh <laughs> before we get into everything that we're going to talk about today because we're going to have some weak in dissonance we're going to have uh, my notes, because I've been thinking a lot about the three tools that you gave us last episode, and I have uh, some expanding upon that, and then of course the you know the practical tip and the dream. 
But before that, Chris, can I please have my imaginative challenge? Yes, you may. And I'll remind listeners that David has got two out of five words of his choice to work into the discussion. We're trying to keep an eye out for he's getting very, very stealthy, if not even slick, with his ability to integrate these. And again, I, I, I counsel people to practice this simple, sort of fun discipline you know, we often talk about process, particularly for artists, writers, people like that. And we forget that's connected with procession and procession or often very linear ideas. What we're trying to do is, is to break up linearity and make it more dimensional, make it more spiral. Uh, that sense of process can be, you know, expanded and changed dimensionally. Okay. So here is your imaginative challenge, which I think is very, very difficult, in fact, as simply as it can be stated. I would like you to present a scenario in which you personally experience a train, an automobile, or an airplane for the first time, okay? For the first okay. time. There are many things going on with this. There is the firstness, which is a topic we're going to get to later in the show. First things, first events, first experiences. In a personal sense, remember way, way back we, we talked about an experience I had in a remote mountain village in Vanuatu where I was the first white person a little boy had ever seen. It had never honestly occurred to me that I would have that experience because I thought, look, you know, those days are long gone. Those days are 200 years in the past. I forgot that he was only four years old, five years old, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so you can look at this from the point of view of your first time, or you can do a little bit more and, and take us back in time to the historic firstness of this. Because I think this is a crucial issue for our moment in history right now. We all think that we're good at revisionist history. We've got the 1619 Project. We all think we know about the Civil War and how people should have behaved, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 400 years ago. And we can't remember what we ate two nights ago. Um, it's very difficult to go back in time to when things were, were new. We talked about telephone poles last time and will they be around in the future? Well, there was a time when there weren't telephone poles. What was it like as they suddenly appeared? Did in fact they suddenly appear? I don't think so. I think in many parts of the world they still haven't appeared. Um, so there's, there's some things going on there about the first encounter, first encounter, first contact is, as they say in anthropology. So are you clear on that? It's your choice of, of those. I think those three are good to choose from um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, as a possible alternative. You, you could um, say the telephone, but I, I don't think that's as momentous visually and experientially. So um, train, automobile, uh, or airplane for the first time. I can do that. This is so I could either go back in time and do an imaginative thought experiment about 
uh, a person who is perhaps closer to my age seeing these for the first time whenever they were invented or I could pull from personal experience and talk about the first time I saw a plane, a train, or an automobile. Yeah, your choice, your choice. So we've got foreground and background there. That's another important technique that we're trying to get across in our inquiries uh, for listeners. A foreground and background. Of Foreground here would be the personal psychological experience. David as a young child seeing something for the first time. The other is going back in time historically when, when everyone is in a child state having not seen, you know, a train before or a plane or, an, you know, an automobile, okay? So your choice there, and that's an important strategic choice, which we will be listening for and will uh, enjoy which direction you, you, you choose to go in there. Okay. Yeah. All okay. right. Got it. Got it. Okay. Well, I'm going to kick off uh, the week in dissonance with, a, it's not something that is... Uh, uh, fits into this week particularly at all. Uh, and, I, and I really just want to throw it out there as a question and as kind of an example, a, a deepening example of, of what we mean by this schism in culture, this schismatic, disjunctive, disjointed tendency for people to say one thing and be doing another for there to be official and unofficial behavior. That's the way anthropologists talk about societies. I, I just thought of a question that, that has been on my mind actually for some time. And I don't, I, this, it's a sincere question and we don't have to dwell on it long, but I want to throw it out in this context. I have never, ever, in my entire life, but certainly all the relevant years of my adulthood, I have never once met a female who has acknowledged ever once watching an entire episode of The View. I've had, I've known women who have seen segments. I've watched segments that have gotten particular, uh, you know, social media play or been talked about for, you know, controversy's sake. So, I mean, I, I have an idea of what the set looks like, who the, the you know, the stars yeah. are. Yeah. But I've never met a woman who has acknowledged watching an entire episode, let alone being a regular viewer. And I would complement that with a, with a, an ancillary question of uh, directed at the Real Housewives shows. There are 11 in America now, 11 spin-offs, and I think 21 internationally. And again, I have never, I don't know a single woman who has ever acknowledged watching those shows. Now, both... The Real Housewives franchise and The View claim enormous audience numbers. And I just am wondering, what is it something about me and the women I know? Maybe that's a good sign. What, what's up with that? I just want to throw that out briefly for your comment, and then we'll move on. <laughs> well, as far as The View goes, I'm with you. I don't know any 
anybody, male or female, who's ever professed to watching a full episode of The View. I've seen it on a lot in waiting rooms. Um, my grandmother used to watch Oprah religiously. Um, every day she'd watch the full episode. I know a lot of people who would watch Montel Jordan, Maury Povich. Um, exactly. Jerry Springer. Um, I was a Jerry I, Springer watcher. I was. I, yeah. I put my hand yeah. up. Jerry, yeah, but Jerry. Jerry, Jerry. Uh, but nobody that I know of has watched The View. Well, and I, I'm not sure if it would be possible if you were to attempt to find a group of less appealing women to be on a show. I mean, at some point, I know they had Star Jones on there. I mean, Whoopi Goldberg, Joy Behar is is just one of the most repellent people <laughs> I think I've ever seen in my life. And then they had that um, that girl who was from Survivor, the blonde from Survivor, and she was good looking, so that was okay. But now they've got Megan McCain, who's just a pig in a dress, and it's just, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I've never, never seen that. However, in my demographic, uh, my wife does not watch The Real Housewives, but I do know people who uh, have watched that. Mostly homosexual men. Uh, oh, I think okay. It, I think it's very popular with homosexual men, uh, black women, and, uh, well, I guess white women too, but... In my experience, it's been black women and gay men. Um, so that potentially could be a demographic issue, uh, who we surround ourselves with, uh, the kind of you know six degrees of separation that we might see on social media. But as far as the view goes, you've, you've got me stumped. I, I okay, well, I feel better. Shit. I feel better, okay? I think you've... I think you've uh, You've answered my question uh, in, in, in the way that I think, think that it can be answered. It's, uh, and it, it, it falls into a, a category of cultural mystery of our time. Uh, yeah. And I think this will be a topic we'll, we'll review over time of, of how certain demographic numbers show up in terms of of certain shows and media product, but also just activities that are, are just frankly seem kind of impossible or certainly counterintuitive when you, you know, you walk around the streets and look at people and talk to people you actually know. Um, and it, it is a mystery. And, and I think that's one of the things that in a Fortrian sense, we're, we're trying to uh, look at anomalies that, that, uh, where something just doesn't add up, <laughs> but yeah, the Big Bang Theory is like that for me. Big Bang Theory uh, shows like uh, uh, Modern Family, Blackish. Uh, I just see I can't wrap my head around why why anybody would watch that and who exactly is watching that. But I do have some ideas about those particular shows. But yeah, The View. You look at that and you think, who is this for? And you know, let me know so I can stay away from them. Um, forever it, it, it seems to me to be an anachronism for based on uh, a view uh, so to speak of, of women that is really you know 20 years behind the times it, despite the fact it, its pretensions to being so very woken up to date it, it's just 
it, it's a disjunction, and I think that's why I wanted to throw it in there. But uh, your turn now. What what caught your eye in in dissonance this last week? Well, there were a few things. The number one thing being that the meme of mass formation psychosis has become very prominent in the in the public eye, thanks to uh, Dr. Robert Malone mentioning it on uh, the Joe Rogan show. Uh, particularly the work of Dr. Maybe he's not a doctor. Desmet. Desmet. This this fellow from Belgium, I want to say, who's been uh, kind of harping about this since the beginning of the pandemic. I remember first seeing Desmet's videos on the Forbidden streaming sites, not YouTube, but things like BitChute, right? The ones where you couldn't get kicked off for questioning the orthodoxy. But this is an idea that has risen to prominence, I think, in the face of um, you know, pictures of people on social media who've been triple vaxxed and are on an airplane in a face mask and a face shield covered in a space blanket, uh, you know, terrified of contracting a, a disease that probably won't kill them. So the idea of a mass formation psychosis is, is that when there's free floating anxiety, uh, people tend to look for something upon which to unload that anxiety. They don't like feeling anxious and having nothing to pinpoint feeling anxious about. And the idea is, is that COVID-19 gave people that release and it became an obsession with many people. Um, and they say that the only way to get out of a mass formation psychosis is to give people something to be more afraid of than the original object of the psychosis. So that's not great. But people called it, uh, I saw that Reuters fact-checked it and said that it was a conspiracy theory, which, uh, I feel like that's a misuse of that word because obviously we know conspiracy means to breathe together and in order for there to be a mass psychosis, it takes a lot of conspiring. But a conspiracy theory typically uh, indicates that there is a sort of shadowy cabal of puppet masters pulling strings to get people to think a certain way. Whereas this is kind of describing a natural phenomenon, uh, most notably one that happened in you know, the 1930s in Nazi Germany. Um, so that for me was a big moment in dissonance. It's a big kind of clash of ideas. I feel as though uh, a certain contingent of people online are losing ground by the day and they've taken to kind of stomping their feet, shaking their head and just saying, nuh-uh, nuh-uh, every time you present them <laughs> with new bits, bits of evidence. The other one that I thought was uh, sort of funny and caused a lot of cognitive dissonance within people of my generation, specifically people of my age who are childless. Uh, the Pope said that your dog or your cat is not your child and that you should stop treating them as such and that you should have children instead. In my opinion, that's none of my business what people want to do with their time, but I did think that the reaction to it the reaction to these things always tells you more about the thing itself than, than what was originally said. And the reaction to this of, of many of many of my acquaintances, my mutuals online, people who have decided to be 30-something and, and childless, how, how viscerally angry they got at this, at the Pope, right? <laughs> I, I, I thought to myself, are you, are you Catholic? I'm not sure why you would give a shit what the Pope said. But this... Uh, this bubble bursting in terms of this particular lifestyle choice, I think speaks to a bit of disappointment in these people, right? If, if you really didn't care, if you had decided, hey, 
I'm not going to have kids. I'm just going to have dogs or cats or what have you, and I'll live a you know a spinster life. Um, that's your personal choice, and you should stand in your truth and be completely fine with it. But I don't get why you would give a shit what anybody thinks about it unless you yourself are harboring a bit of doubt about your life choices. So not my business. It's fine either way. Well, I mean, I think you and I would both agree that it's probably better for people to reproduce for the sake of, you know, the species. Well, not everyone. I, I'm not sure. sure I agree with that. I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, yeah, I, let's I, pump no. the brakes here. Let's pump the brakes. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I do think that the reaction to it, looking specific, because that's what I do now. I, I don't really pay attention to what the news is telling me. I pay attention to how people, a, a very small sample size, obviously, but a representative nonetheless, of people react to news, right? So if there's this idea that mass formation psychosis exists um, instead of people saying, huh, that's an interesting concept. I wonder if maybe that happened to me. Maybe I was swept up in a bit of a mass formation psychosis they say no no yeah and, you know when the when the pope uh says maybe you should have had kids instead of adopting pets and instead of people saying well that's an interesting idea uh number one i don't care what the pope thinks and number two uh you know it just wasn't the right choice for me at the time and now i'm going to move on and watch the view right um <laughs> basically but instead you get how dare you how dare you? So I think my takeaway from all this is watch the reactions to things. Well, I th- those will tell you more than the thing itself. I think that's a really important point to to make about this whole idea of ours in terms of, of looking at dissonance and, and disjointedness and divisiveness and schism. Is it, it, it isn't just a question of people leaving things sit. You know, if it were, then then really it wouldn't be worth talking about. Um, I mean, I can speak on on the child dog issue, for instance. That uh, I mean, my uh, principal wife and I really couldn't get together about the idea of of having a child. I left that in her court, and she really didn't know what to do with that idea. And we we very blatantly and openly uh, fixed. I think a great deal of affection and devotion and responsibility on our dog, which was this sort of magical dingo, you know. Uh, and the dingo, you know, certainly did have something that that set her apart from any other uh, animal that I've ever experienced. But nonetheless, I mean, it was something that we we at least were quite aware of. You know, it was too big to walk around and deny. You know. Um, so I think you're right. There are people who um, it's the implications of these disjunctions that that we're really interested in, because otherwise they they're really um, they're not schisms that somehow people have managed to to cope with them. You know, we we are able to cope with dissonance. Dissonance only becomes real dissonance when we can no longer find any harmonic framework in which to. Uh, relate to it at all, you know, and we have to deny right. it. So I think that's a really important point. Well, the, the, that, that was a good st- sort of starting point. I, I want to zip through a few of mine because, um, well, one particularly, uh, I, I, you know, I think we've just been through the January 6th anniversary, which was something that kind of 
I mean, I think it is important, and I don't want to dismiss its significance, but on the other hand, I think the media treatment of it was quite bizarre. I did notice that we had, and this ties into one of the tools that um, I'm going to mention, uh, one of the new tool, tools to sort of be aware of. We had a lot of talk of, of, of insurrection and the end of democracy, uh, very grandiose uh, hysterical sort of statements of, of significance, which, you know, I, I don't think that you, you uh, need to downplay what happened or to not be concerned about it, to avoid sure. that kind of, of histrionic language. But I do note that, that and this is uh, from my media analytics, which is uh, AI-driven and, and I think as objective as anything that we know can get, that a lot, well, in, in fact, all of that rhetoric uh, came from the same media sources that gave us the phrase mostly peaceful protests for, uh, you know, riots and chaos in 15 major cities, which cost over a billion dollars in damage, destroyed businesses, and took the lives of many people. Uh, I'm not sure if those were mostly peaceful protests. Uh, and I, I think that there's, this is an example of complete imbalance you know, in the media reporting. So a major schism, which we're all aware of. And I, I think it got so much attention, we sort of want to move on. But I want to contrast that with a, a very different type of story. Uh, Antonio Brown the very uh, loose cannon wide receiver who uh, has just been uh, released from the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He's had a very sort of difficult uh, career. Um, I, I think he's one of the most beautiful men without a shirt on you could possibly find. Just a gorgeous specimen of male athleticism and a great... Uh, professional athlete. There's absolutely no question about that. And he's been rewarded for that, you know, 15, 20 million dollar a year contracts, this worship of, of the body. But meanwhile, there are many people now coming forward who are saying, or at least suggesting, that he is suffering from uh, some sort of CET uh, condition. Um, damn mental, you know, neurological damage from head trauma, uh, which would hardly be surprising given his profession, given his the, the number of years he's been playing the game. Uh, and it strikes me that we, we, you know, this is the first time in the last five years we were starting to have these debates about professional sports, particularly football and boxing. Uh, but, I mean, when I was growing up playing football, it would have been out of the question to talk about that. And I got a concussion in a game, uh, and no one really, I mean, people were concerned about it in the moment, but no one said, well, we're going to you know, cancel the sport. <laughs> and now we're talking about it, but I think we're, we're, we're really, you know, the, the voices uh, suggesting that he needs, well, he certainly needs psychological help for starters. Everyone acknowledges that. His behavior is erratic and bizarre. <laughs> But we've got sort of this two thing of, of worship of the body, respect for his physicality, 
and absolutely no interest really in his interior psychological state or mental health. And yeah. I think that that um, is emblematic of how we treat the whole mental health problems around you know, the world, but certainly in America. Unless someone is schizophrenic and freaking out and causing almost a, a criminal level of fear, no one cares, you know, really. Right. Yeah. No one cares. Yeah. I would agree so, with that. Until it becomes a problem, it's a NIMBY problem, right? Not in my yeah. backyard. Until you have someone shitting on your back door, uh, you don't really care. And um, I think that also the, the, the CET aspect of it uh, and the fact that this is a guy who is very masculine and very powerful, very physically powerful, um, I think that, you know, people don't realize when you have your bell rung like that that many times, uh, it doesn't matter how strong you are on the outside, your, your brain is screwed up. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I feel like uh, mental health has been getting a lot of um, attention lately. Uh, it's, but it's usually, and this is a whole different rabbit hole that we don't have to go down right now, but it's usually uh, solved, quote unquote, by uh, either SSRIs or by, you know, telling people that they just have to love themselves and, you know, take care of themselves. And that's a whole other can of worms, but best to him. Hope he gets better. Right. You know, and I think it, it just, I'm, I'm just sort of, I, I think it is emblematic of a much bigger uh, problem. And, and mm-hmm. um, so moving on, and, and this sounds very silly, uh, but this is a really good example of something that my psychologist friend says is at the heart of how media scrambles our brains in the midst of a whole range of very serious issues. I mean, think of what we've got on our plate. We've got major, major crises. in. I mean, if people are talking about the end of democracy, if people are talking about will the pandemic ever end, or a lost generation of children, I mean, on and on it goes. Uh, Crisis at the border, uh, you know, climate change that may destroy the earth, on and on and on. Uh, I came across this. This was featured in a very prominent place in a couple of major media outlets. Two space scholars have warned that astronauts may turn to cannibalism if humans do not prepare enough for the rigors of colonizing outer space. I just think, really? <laughs> I mean, on t- are you kidding? We've got oh, wildfires. News day. Must well, have been a slow news day. But you know, it uh, you know, blizzards, you know, had trapped thousands of people. We've got wildfires killing people. We've got people released too early on bail going out and murdering people. We've got businesses falling over. We've got parents not knowing if their kids are gonna go on and on. And then we have to worry about cannibalism in space. I mean So having just recovered from that and and trying to work out how did that get attention and who are these space scholars? That ties into our whole priest cast of, you know, four out of five dentists and these experts and a panel of, you know, professionals, you know, all these 
these authority figures that we never know and never get to vet and never get to question. I then came across a, a sort of TikTok social media uh, crazed article where a woman is getting an enormous amount of attention and strangely... I know what you're going to say. Do you? Delivering the dead fish? Oh, delivering the dead fish. Oh, no, no, no. I know this one, too. I thought you were going to talk about the woman who was uh, selling her farts in jars. Oh, oh, okay. Well, look, that that is... I mean, I I did post about that on Facebook because I just... I thought, well, this to me is the end of the world. The hell with (laughs) democracy. It's the end of the world. Yeah. You know? I mean, yes. Okay. So there is a TikToker who looks hot, you know? I'm getting so sick of that expression, you know? I mean, I I never thought I would get tired of the idea of a hot woman. But now... Yeah. TikTok and social media have gotten to me with that. But yes, she's selling her farts. But this other woman who's, you know, and I'm I'm a little bit dubious about this use of the word woman sometimes. I I we got to go back to young woman or and I think girl would apply in this case. I really do. But she is proudly delivering a dead fish through the physical mail slot of her ex every day okay and i I mean the questions you know i i think to myself well a i'd board up that mail slot b i'd get a restraining order c i'd start doing something back or you know something i just wouldn't take a dead fish uh on my door in in her doorstep every day um but I remember ages and ages ago, there was, uh, you remember the old Mod Squad TV show featured uh, a guy who was actually David Cassidy's father, that actor. I uh, can't remember his first name at the moment. Uh, well, he was, he was David Cassidy's father. And he plays a guy called the cheerleader who sets up harassment for people so he does things like that so you don't have to get your 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 hands dirty and smelly with dead fish he'll do it for you but i mean god we have so many stories about weird harassment revenge porn on and on and on how could this story get attention and what's more how could people be going, you go, girl? It's like, mm-hmm. what? Really? You want her right. as your friend? You want her as a co-worker? You want to employ her? I mean, if that's mm-hmm. not an mm-hmm. open statement of pathology, I just don't know what is. So I, I just, I, to me, that's just completely bizarre. Um, how it we is. could approve mm-hmm. of that, you know? Right, right. Yeah, the approval and the and the you go girl aspect of it is, uh, I've seen a lot of that recently. Oh, the guy is a, it's Jack Cassidy is uh, David Cassidy's father. Okay. Um, but I, uh, yeah, I've I've seen a lot of that uh, online recently. This kind of um, people for for TikTok clout or Twitter clout or what have you, kind of documenting their completely insane behavior and you always find a group of people 
who will cheer you on. This makes me think actually about, we were talking today and I was thinking about this over the past week or so, because you and I talk a lot about uh, the dissonance and, and the media. And we, we sort of, you know, we kind of ring this bell uh, on, a, on a daily or on a weekly, I should say, basis about the fact that the media is driving people completely insane whether mm-hmm. it's social media or legacy media and i think that when you look at the just smorgasbord of bad shit that is on the media at all times it might seriously this is my practical tip behoove people to take anywhere between a month and a year off from all forms of media. Oh, period. I agree. Complete, I agree. If at all possible. total detox. If at all possible. So, you know, people who would push back against this would say something to the effect of it is a citizen's duty to stay informed about what's going on in the news. And I would agree with that. But I would put some caveats on there. I would say that it's important to stay informed about what's going on with your local city council, right? Do you know exactly. who do you know who the mayor of your town you know what your mayor's name exactly. is? Exactly. Do, yeah. do you know what your your district representative's name is? Um, so I would say it is important, but what is a year? I mean, we've already taken two years off from normal life due to COVID. Um I, I just took a year off from booze. I mean, what is a year in the context of your life? You get, you know, if you're lucky, you get 80, 90 of them. Um, so one year, no, one month or one month, one month, one year, I'd say a year. What if you just turned it off completely? It's worth thinking about as just as an experiment. You know, when I was, uh, taking my year off of booze which i still haven't drank and i'm not sure that i will but when i was taking my year off i thought to myself it's a year what's a year if i can't do a year then i know that there's a serious issue here and i've gotten a lot of benefits from it a lot of health benefits i've gotten a lot of work done my workload has increased probably 5x in the past year because i've been able to meet deadlines and and work on creative projects do this podcast with you another podcast with my friend kelby there have been a ton of benefits to just not drinking for one year so why not why not take one year off of media and just see what happens there's a great book uh i've forgotten the author's name but the title is uh digital detox and i recommend it um a friend loaned it to me and I had to sort of give it back, but it really, it addresses this issue in, in, in very practical terms. And I think it is something that the people should, should think about. And it, it is, it falls in line with things, you know, like um, taking a break from alcohol or, or, you know, giving it away entirely. But I think just taking a break um, is, you know, it's good for the soul. It's good for one's self-esteem that you do have some sense of control. And I think it, it is a very good bit of advice. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, uh, it certainly couldn't hurt any. And I think there is an, an enormous amount of data. People like Nicholas Carr and Douglas Rushkoff, um, 
really you know talk about the effects of of media exposure and social media echoing um, that really we need to to be aware of if we want to have clearer minds and greater strength of of, of psychic presence in the world we can do some self-healing by uh, yeah by taking a break or certainly putting on some uh, some controls, you know, some sort of framework to give us a little bit more distance from that. I think that's absolutely vital. Um, all right. Well, do you want to jump into uh, your analysis, your in- interrogation of the tools from last week? Yeah, yeah, I, I do. I have uh, some notes that I took as I was re-listening to the episode and as I was thinking about it. Um, these are uh, more expansions on them. Um, I'm not sure if there's really much in the way of pushback, but they were thoughts that came to me as I was thinking about what you, uh, what you said. The first thing, which actually doesn't, uh, so this is all about words, right? These are all, this is all about language. Mm -hmm. And last week you mentioned words that had fish strength. And I really loved that. The idea of a fish out of water. Uh, smaller than you, usually. Most fish that you would catch would be smaller than you. But that kind of strength of a fish, I used to go fishing all the time uh, with my uncle in West Virginia in the in Appalachia. And I remember, you know, catching catfish and having to be careful not to touch the spines and, and all that sort of thing. But those suckers can get heavy and strong. And I thought about uh, that in the context of words I'm thinking of a word that has been taken out of water, right? So fish strength, uh, it you know, it's it's got uh, some fire to it. It's fighting you, but it's also how does it how does a word perform when it's taken out of its element like that? Does it still have power when it's taken out of its element? Um, and for how long, right? The the kind of singularity of a word, I think, is a concept that you can put over all three of the major tools that you that you talked about so with the attention by agenda i was thinking about this a lot and i think that um this ties into our weakened dissonance uh with people not being able to now see the words mass formation without having a certain feeling about that in the same way that your friend is not able to look at the word pilgrim without wanting to spit on the ground or whatever it was that they said. Right. <laughs> um, but it made me think that there are some some people who put words into boxes and they have to wait either for themselves to fashion a new box or to be gifted a new box from somebody else. And it makes me think about alternatively <clears throat> letting words roam free which goes back to that fish strength idea and i think that that is a nice complement to this attention by agenda idea this this idea of allowing words to be in the process of always uh always becoming something right when it when it comes to the secularization so i actually put this on twitter because i was so in love with this idea of the secularization of words as a degeneration of, of word magic, I put on Twitter the idea of the original etymological meaning of secular that we talked about last week. And kind of unsurprisingly, I got peop- I got a lot of pushback 
which I mean, it did take me aback at first because I was high on the idea itself. And I, whenever I see something cool, I, I share it online. And I'm always a bit surprised by how angry people get at me online for, for, for doing almost nothing. It's a real skill that I have that sometimes that people just lash out back at me. But it was people who were uh, telling me what the dictionary definition of secular was, which, you know, you and I addressed and, and we're well aware of. One person actually posted the dictionary definition, which got me a little hot because it just implied that I'm stupid and I don't know what the dictionary definition of secular is, right? But I thought that that pushback itself was interesting because in a meta sense, that's exactly what we were talking about, right? The exactly. inability, Yeah, the inability to see a word in as being on a timeline and, and being something else because people are like, no, the word secular means this words change meaning and now it means this but there's that keyword now now it means this as though words aren't like people and they don't have have lifeline you know they don't have origins they don't have ancestry and that that ancestry is just not important it it matters what it means right now and when you get into that frame of mind the secularization as a degeneration of word magic right you you're at the whim of whatever the people who control the levers want a word to mean at any given moment. And it's very, very dangerous because the words that we use today could mean something different tomorrow. And then these same people would be in my comments lecturing me. Well, that's not what that word means anymore. Right. <laughs> so well, anyway, I, yeah. I, you know, I, I find that fascinating and, and also completely predictable. I mean, that person or you know if there were multiple but that person's multiple, yeah okay those people's behavior is is emblematic of of a certain kind of iq which is not uh low but certainly limited and it's fixed it's a very rigid mind it's more a style of thinking than a, than an intelligence capability uh i mean they completely miss the point that that we definitely acknowledge what what the connotation is now uh but they're not correct in saying that is the the denotative meaning full stop you know it that, that's not correct uh mm -hmm. there is a broader field in the denotative uh definitions and it includes the original sense and origin etymologically of the word which is what we were talking about of Mm -hmm. of a generation fixed in time temporal as opposed to enduring as and i think that there's a very strong link that that goes to the, the sacred versus non-sacred uh level but i find that immensely predictable that people are trying to defend secular uh because that fits a narrative that fits a psychological and cultural narrative that many people cling to with religious fervor, I might add. I think that's yeah. what I find hilarious about that. Um, but that's almost like too good to be true because it's expressive form. They're exactly yeah. kind of performing uh, mm -hmm. what our concern is. So uh, right on yeah. to those people in, in spite of themselves. And I hope they knock themselves out trying to, uh, to make that kind of tragic uh, case, um, you know? And I think the sad part is that the, the people doing that, 
uh, you know, do have a degree of intelligence and, and probably some degree of education and, and obviously enough commitment to it to want to take the time to engage with you. Although I do think you, there is something lightning rodish about you uh, for social media turmoil, you know? I, yeah, I, I think yeah, always has, always has been. Yeah. I, I would I would go to bed and I would post the most, in my eyes, innocuous thing. And I would wake up to 40 some odd notifications, right? I had broken that little sphere of the internet with a thing that I'd said. And I, you know, would just be like, what the, f- what did I do? I didn't do anything. You it's, know? <laughs> it's like the agitation of iron filings around a magnet, you know? Right, it really right. is. It's physical. It's it, it's psychomagnetic, and I think that you're you're aware of it now, and you know you're just going to have to live with it. And you know yeah. that it really. I mean, I'm sure you could push you know hotter buttons if you if you would you know choose to do so, but it doesn't matter because it's it's in your nature. You're you are a natural lodestone lightning rod. Uh, sort of person for social agitator media, you know yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. matter then, now it doesn't matter now i'm i'm totally fine with it uh sometimes i i do reflect on it and my wife will tell me often when i tell her these stories she's like yeah you've just always kind of been that way she's like i don't know how you do it but you piss people off and i'm you know it's just part of my personality so it is what it is the final thing has to do with your third tool about uh, robust words, not being able to, you, you can't just slap anti on them, for example, to, to change the word. A word that does not easily lend itself to its opposite is more robust. And I was thinking about the putting the prefix anti in front of words. And the more and more I thought about it, the more I thought that that is just a very loose and weak way of of using words so okay so you make a you make a word right you make optimist you brought up optimist and how you don't have anti-optimist you have pessimist and the reason why is because optimist is such a self-contained and alive word that it's not able to you know just be flipped on its head to to spring back on on people when you make a when you make those words like anti-racism, for example. They're not very robust because anti-racism includes the sum of everything that is not racism. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. It's, It's just not specific enough, right? So you have to go back and you're shooting yourself in the foot because first you have to define the term itself and even if you do define the term, you are hamstrung by the sheer scope of what you are against, right? So I like that as it's a very anti-othering technique, right? You want the language to be positive, not in the sense of, you know, a positive mental attitude, but but positive as a as a, an antithesis of negative, right? You want positive language because it's simply more exacting and more alive than something as vague as whatever it is that I'm saying, I just don't mean that thing. I could mean any of the hundreds of thousands of other things, 
but I specifically don't mean that. So anyway, I really liked that idea too, but I didn't post that one on social media. Okay, well, I'm glad you did, because I think it is a really important concept. And for people interested in this I- larger idea and the extensions of it, Henri Bergson, uh, the philosopher and a kind of scientist, uh, he wrote Matter and Memory and Creative Evolution, uh, French Nobel Prize winner, a major thinker of, of the 20th century. One of his key uh, interests uh, for me is the, the, the difficulty in establishing the content of a negative idea and the whole process of negation. And he really does some beautiful stuff with this, that it is philosophically strong, but it's written in a language that I think a lot of people can understand. And it's heightened my uh, alertness to any kind of negation, because mm-hmm. I think there's something very peculiar going on there. And, uh, you know, of course, it's a valid uh, idea. It's a, it's a valid linguistic idea. It's a valid philosophical uh, technique. But we need to be alert to the phrasing of it. Uh, and wherever negation comes up, there are some strange formulas and patterns and protocols that we should be tuned into. For instance, I don't think that you will ever hear the expression, there are zero cows in that field. Mm-hmm. You know, in practical connotative terms, you, you, you won't hear that. And we, we need to be alert to negation because it is a peculiar, peculiar uh, process, technique. Uh, English is rife with little qualifications, disclaimers, uh, counter actions, and they're very unsettling. Their, their goal is to destabilize certainty, to uh, undermine relationships. Now, sometimes that can be interesting. I think subverting uh, expectations is always an interesting path. But we want to do that meaningfully. And Bergson's point is that an enormous amount of the energy involved in the giant process of negation in language and thought is, is really quite artificial and bizarre and ultimately uh, very destructive because it wastes thinking time. It's, it's, it's not meaningful. We want to be more positive, not positive in, in a kind of Pollyanna way, but we want to just be vigorous, you know? We yeah, want to be making right, exactly. decisive choices, you know? Well, exactly, and that goes, not to go too far down this, but that goes into the act of creative writing also. Um, I think that something that makes your voice so interesting and my voice interesting and most of the writers who I really care about interesting is that uh, robustness and assertiveness of the language. It's not, um, it's language that's able to stand on its own. When you read uh, your writing, for example, there are very few qualifying sentences to what came before. Uh, And that's not to say that everything is declarative and, you know, uh, or even minimal, right? But the language itself does its job and then gets out of its own way. And I think that's a great way to speak as well. I do too. And I think that's a, a measure of um, honesty, sincerity, uh, purposefulness, and finally effectiveness. And I don't think that it, it works against things uh, 
such as ambiguity or ambivalence or complexity at all. I think that for those uh, to have meaning, uh, they depend on a certain robustness and clarity and some degree of vector velocity that mm-hmm. is, is mm-hmm. there, you know. And if you don't have that, well, then no one cares. Uh, and I think it's also, for me, and I, I think you would, would agree too, that, that there's almost a moral element of, of character failing. It, it's mm-hmm. not just wishy-washiness in a personality sense. It's, I don't think I want to go out in a kayak on a river with that person. I don't want to go into business with that person. I don't really even want to be alone in a car with them for a hundred miles because I'm not really, I, I just, I don't really like the way they, they think, <laughs> you know? And, uh, totally. as, yeah. I think that's an important, uh, I mean, whether or not we explicitly make those, uh, decisions, uh, clear to other people. I think they're active in our own minds. We're sort of always thinking, I, I just don't know what that person's saying, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's, they're kind right. of, and it, it ends up being a waste of time, you know? How are you doing? Well, I'm not bad. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah, not yeah. bad. <laughs> okay, that's, uh, we're off to a great start with this conversation yeah well try to imagine me typing what you just said into twitter (laughs) i might do it depends Uh, on how i'm feeling this evening maybe i'll type it in i'll just i'll type in uh you know people who are not exacting and concise with their language are weak of character We'll see there how you go. Sits with people. God, you're my favorite lightning rod. I think that that you 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 really crystallize that with beautiful precision. God, love it. Mm-hmm. I love it. Okay, well, look, that was a good review. Um, we're, uh, we're 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 sort of um, we're into an hour now. I I do you want me yeah. to to roll out some new tools? Should I maybe? Uh, just suggest them and because uh, I think that, uh, I mean what I'm hoping for with with these tools these are very different uh, in terms of conceptual magnitude from the practical tips these are tools and I think that we will need to spend some time with them and I like the idea of rolling them out and having a chance for you to to pick them apart respond to them I think your responses were important and I love Love the Twitter feedback. I think that was worth hearing just all by itself. Um, What would you like to do? Do we think we need to hold these over for next time? Give us... Give us the... Let's roll them out. I want to hear them. I want to hear them. You want to hear them just in, in thumbnail. Is that right? Correct, yes. Okay. Well, the first one is an extension of attention by agenda. It's uh, the versus me. And we have many examples of this. But um, I'm talking about things that certain people can say that others can't. That's my starting point there. And we, we know there are some words that are appropriate for certain people to say and completely inappropriate for other people to say. <laughs> And that's an interesting social phenomenon unto itself. 
But I'm going to argue next time that there is a much, much deeper principle there. Because one of the key words that everybody can imagine, we will uh, roll that out next time, I don't think is, is much of an issue. I don't think that there are many people who are not allowed to say the word I'm thinking of who in fact want to say it or have ever said it or really, you know, it, it's no sacrifice at all not to say it. Uh, although they may feel a little bit ridiculous with the baby talk code word that they're given as an alternative. But what I do want to suggest and what I would, would leave you thinking about and our listeners that underlying this sort of uh, social media decorum, woke protocol that's in place, and, and it, there are some other examples of, of thee versus me that, that don't necessarily fall into the uh, immediately current woke framework. But there's a deeper problem with it. The underlying mechanics, this is what you and I are, are always interested, we're not interested in socio-politics uh, of our time necessarily. We have something more than the secular focus. The underlying mechanics completely trash one of the key principles of world discourse, not just Greco-European rhetoric as has come down through the Western tradition, world discourse. The principle that what matters is what's said, not who says it. Not who says it. Now, when we flip this around, when we short-circuit it, and this has been short-circuited in relatively recent times, when we do this on a grand media and social media scale, it leads directly to the kind of dissonance, the kind of scramble of mind that creates still more problems. So that's the first principle. Then next time I would like to look closely at two uh, features of, of language. Uh, they're poetic features, they're rhetorical features, they've now become a little bit too uh, systemically entrenched uh, to be, uh, for us to feel comfortable about, I think. Uh, hyperbole and euphemism. Hyperbole and euphemism. We're going to break those down next time. Look at why they're working, how they're working, as in the effect they have, and also some examples of why they're so important today, why they have increased dramatically uh, in usage. I mean, hyperbole certainly. You might well think that euphemism was something of the past. Not so at all. Not so at all. And I want to look more at, although they're the linguistic conceptual ideas, I think they have enormous social and cultural ramifications. The big issue of cause versus consequence, cause versus consequence, this is an example of where an enormous number of disagreements and disjunctions come from. Uh, it's related to Gilbert Ryle's idea of category errors, category mistakes, where the same words are used in very different contexts 
and no agreement on commonality is decided. There is no such thing as a pure cause or a pure consequence. Most people realize that even if they haven't you know, thought in big philosophical terms. Almost anything that we could label as a cause is a consequence of something else. And consequences are rarely self-contained. And we want to look at some examples of, of how that becomes a problem. The final tool, which I think is something that is absolutely uh, signature to our time, hallmark, the precedent of constructed amnesia, precedent and constructed amnesia, an emphasis on firsts, first, the first woman to be mm -hmm. a defensive coordinator, the first black president. David, tell me, who was the third man to walk on the moon? There only been 12. I don't, I don't know. Okay, okay. Well, for next week, uh, that's one of your assignments. But it's, it's an interesting example. We've only had 12 humans walk on the moon, for God's sakes. You'd think we know, you know, could give the third guy some attention. Most people of a certain age you know, know Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. But the third man on the moon is invisible. He's disappeared. And I would suggest that our emphasis on firsts and on precedent is part of a constructed cultural amnesia strategy. Or as in stage magic terms, as a famous old uh, saying, we don't care about the man who goes into the box. We care about who comes out. And I think that with our obsession about shattering glass ceilings and breaking precedents and who's gonna be first this, who's gonna be first, we are, absolutely entrenching a program of very fast-acting cultural amnesia. It's like a drug. It's designed yeah. to create an erase. It's self-erasing history. Self-erasing yeah. history. So we'll, we'll come back next time, <clears throat> if we could, with who was the third <clears throat> man to walk on the moon. Uh, but... My final one is, is the, uh, the project of reversalism, which is a simple judo technique. We, we spoke to our first guest, Grant Womack, who's heavily into jiu-jitsu. We're going to be uh, showing that uh, Zoom video interview later in the month. Uh, I want us to think about the technique, the psychic defense technique of reversalism. And I'll leave you with one example for this week. <clears throat> the verb to weaponize has become enormously popular in the last two years. Everything is being weaponized, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. just, and there's, there, it, it's a good, you know, I, there's good reason for that. And it's an interesting verb. Uh, so rather than simply negate it as in neutralize, God, does anything sound, you know, more pathetic than that? Because, um, you know, neutralized. Well, then what have you done? It's just, you know, inert? No. I'm suggesting the alternative to weaponizing is vitamizing. Vitamizing. Mm -hmm. So that ties in with our fish strength of words, our robustness of seeing beyond negation. Reversalism has got to be the magical physics in a jujitsu sense of something 
that is a positive channeling of energy rather than just simply neutralization. Okay, so there's quite Absolutely. a bit there uh, to go through next time, but I I think that will will give us um, some you know things to think about, and I'll I'll be ready to rock and roll with those, and that gives you a chance to have some uh, interrogatory questions uh, right straight up front for next time. So I, like I think vitamize. I like vitamize. Yeah. That's great. Uh, I'll think of uh, word. It's good. It's robust. Yeah. It's robust. Yeah. It sounds like a sounds like a juicer. You know exactly. What I mean? <laughs> well, it, it it's got that sort of you know sensory, tactile, muscular engagement part of the world. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, I I think that's what we where we want to get to with something like weaponize. We don't want to neutralize you know weapons. Uh, we want to sort of and we don't want to neutralize concepts. We want to vitamize things. We want to take the positive pro stance wherever we can. Yeah, vital life, life, exactly, enliven, enrich. Well, I think that's great. Um, your imaginative challenge for today was definitely difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, I have some thoughts and remembrances of the first time that I was on an airplane, and it was just me. Um, the first time I ever saw, well, this wouldn't be the first time I ever saw an airplane, but it was the first time I ever encountered an airplane up close, was my family's move to Germany when I was 10. And I remember a lot of it, as a matter of fact. I remember uh, the airport. I remember the airport waiting room, which I think is the bet noir of every traveler. Um, we were on a military trip and the way that military trips work is you go to the airport and they have to wait for a flight that has the available seats for you to get on. They're, they're not able to actually book them. I guess it's a way that the U S military saves money because you know, you got to spend those trillions of dollars on airplanes and missiles, not on the people who actually work for it. So I remember sitting in that waiting room for what seemed like forever. And when you're 10 years old, if you're in a place for that long, it becomes your entire life. So I remember that waiting room. Like I remember the houses that we've lived in or my grandmother's house. I can still remember the, the paint on the walls and it was different than your average airport. It had almost a prison cell feel to it. I remember when I went to get my passport in order, the guy who took the passport uh, was an older black man and he took it and he said, uh, oh, you were born on December 1st. That means you're a Sagittarius. He said, one day a girl's going to ask you, what's your sign? And you're going to need to know that. <laughs> and I never forgot it. I remember that. And then I remember the airplane pulling up and I was surprised by how enormous it was. I think the size of planes is surprising. When you've seen them on TV, you think it, you know, it's a little missile that sits maybe a hundred people but this was a big 747 and i watched the the connector the walkway connect to it i remember thinking about the jim carrey movie liar liar where he falls out of one of those because he's missed his flight and he kind of runs down it and then the camera pans over and he he falls out of the tube and then being on it um i'd never before experienced in my life uh not being able to really hear my own voice 
which I think becomes kind of a normal thing. At this point, I've probably flown hundreds of times now, literally, um, at least close to a hundred. And, uh, but I remember the kind of, uh, incubation feeling of being in a plane, uh, the, the ears popping. And mm-hmm. again, the duration of that flight, just how long we were on that plane. I think of the flight from DC to Germany is about seven or eight hours. So not, not terribly long by the standards of most, uh, some flights I've been on, like probably the longest one I've been on was to Korea. That was a 13 hour flight with a stop in Beijing, the worst airport in the world. But I do just recall its immensity. I remember it's, it's kind of self-contained aspect. And I remember, uh, maybe for the first time feeling like I was not the center of the world, just kind of another person shoved into this thing. So those are my impressions. Yeah. Okay. I hope, I, okay. I hope that that was helpful. It was t- it was tough, but yeah. Look, this is that's, a hard exercise. I look. I think that was a very good response from the personal front. Uh, I tell you what, I'd like to do uh, the 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 normal uh, procedure with these imaginative challenges is that you're confronted with them on the spot at the beginning of every episode with no time to prepare. We did give you at one point uh, two episodes to to respond because there was a particularly difficult challenge. What I'd like to do with this one is is to do that again and to give you to next week to come back with a a historical scenario where you are seeing this example of technology, uh, one of those three major transportation innovations uh, for the first time. It, it's your ch- you know, choice how you construct that scenario of whether or not the, you know, the, the car or the train or the plane is new to everyone or to, to people generally at the time. Uh, but I would like you to do a, a bit of imaginative contextualizing because I think this is a really, really important shortcoming of our time where people are simply not able to project back into the past to really understand realities at the very, very basic level of smells and sounds and day-to-day routines and limitations. And yet, there are an enormous number of people today who feel completely comfortable making moral and ethical judgments about the people of the past. And, and they make the assumption that our consciousness hasn't really changed, which I find absolutely flabbergasting. So I would like you to think more about this and for that to be, we'll, uh, we'll rephrase this or, or reacquaint listeners with the challenge in our next episode. But the idea would be to, you did a great job, I think, with the personal reminiscence Mm -hmm. in this sense Mm -hmm. but i Mm -hmm. I, i'm looking for a real uh, imaginative projection in history and human social time of what that must have looked like you know Um, right right what what would that experience have been and therefore what is the context the matrix of experience and connection that you're coming out of that's what we're trying to sort of tease out in a way 
Um, because when you think about it, really all that we have about that is, is pretty speculative in terms of literature, photography, and, and Hollywood films, you know? Um, mm. it, it, it really is very, very, uh, I mean, where else is that hard memory of, of what those experiences were like? You know, the people whose first, you know, are, are really are either dead or certainly dying. Um, mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. this is a way of, of exploring further that idea of hard and soft memory that I've put forward is, is the, one of the key differences between uh, technologized uh, developed nation culture and indigenous traditional societies. So mm. gotcha. I think if, if we could do that, that would be really cool. Um, I will 100% do that. And uh, I appreciate the clarification. Uh, you were very clear at the beginning too, but I appreciate that uh, extra mile there at the end. And yeah, I'll think about that and I'll come back with something cool next week. Yeah, I think it's fair enough to have two goes at that because it is a difficult challenge. And I think it leads to some interesting ongoing discussion. And it's part of our bigger uh, frame of reference in terms of, of topics and, and approaches so good luck with that we'll we'll, we'll, uh, we'll look forward to that next time uh are you ready Excellent. for the dream i am uh do we have a practical tip oh we do we have could... a practical tip actually sorry yes we do um, i am interested in the dream because you've given me a sneak preview thematically <laughs> of the dream <laughs> yes yes i for so, people yeah. who are you know concerned that we're running over time normal time well i think that the it's worth it. We're covering some ground. This practical tip is, um, it's again, it sounds very simple, and, and this is the goal of the practical tips. Very different from the tools. Uh, we want practical tips that are things that people can actually apply. And as always, this is something that I'm really working on in my life. I, this is not a holier-than-thou thing of, like, I've got the answer. Not at all. Um, my psychologist friend reminded me that any response is a kind of response. Non-response is a response. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to him about my kind of ongoing anxiety about getting back to people if they email me or phone me or text me. I mean, I'm extremely conscientious that way. I, was, I, I got that habit from my business partner in uh, the advertising agency I ran, but I think it's a natural tendency. And that's good, you know, in, in professional terms, that, that's a good thing. But I really take that too far. I really, really do. And my psychologist's advice, and my advice to you now, is if you are innately hyper-conscientious, try to, if not break this pattern, take a break from it. Mm -hmm. Take a break from it. It will not be the end of the world if you don't immediately respond. It may open up whole new channels of effectiveness. Conversely, if your tendency is to be a bit slack or lazy or late, try making a short-term concerted effort to get back to people promptly, to really ping back, to really throw the ball back. Think of playing catch. You don't hang, want to hang on to the ball. Get it back to people. Get it off your desk. Get it moving. Um, but if you reverse your natural pattern or the habit that you've fallen into, if you can consciously get a hold of that, 
I think getting a hold of any habit is powerfully liberating and inspiring. Um, I think you will really notice some changes. And so keep track of those changes. See what a, a real flipping the ball around does. If you're super conscientious, chill out a bit. Give it some time. Let some air in there. If you're considered to be not so conscientious and maybe someone who needs prodding, and that's fair enough. No, no stones thrown there. But try to reverse that dynamic. Throw it around. Do something differently. You only get new results when you do things differently. Simple as that. You know? So that's the practical tip. All right. Yes. Okay. Well, now I've got to, uh, I'll trigger warn everyone here. This, there is uh, some <clears throat> sex in this. Okay. Yes. There is. But it starts off in a classic American small town. There are many around me. I, I don't know, Cedar City, Utah, uh, many places in Oregon. God, America's still full of them, thankfully. Um, classic, uh, you know, red brick historic downtown section giving way to a main drag of, of small, you know, strip malls, your Motel 6 your Bank of America, Best Western Motel, signs for charbroiled steaks and root beer floats, maybe a lubratorium, a lubratorium, I love those. You know, checker tablecloths and an Elks Club, but also a 7-Eleven, you know, that kind of mix. Well, out of this small town, I find myself at a much older motel. The kind that I really love. I love to photograph old motels. And I want to shoot a, a murder movie in one. And lo and behold, there's my first wife. And it does not take very long for her magnetic control over me to manifest. And we start having hot, wet sex. Let's and go. I, and I have to say that although that woman was definitely on the psychotic spectrum, for vaginal grip, for friction <laughs> and traction, and just that pelvic floor intensity, mm -hmm. I mean, she was there, you know. And we talk a lot about in our culture about male sexual prowess, about size and endurance and all that kind of thing. And all that's good, that's important. But there there is female sexual prowess too, and not just in body shape, you know, having a right. voluptuous ass or really hot breasts, you know. It's also, you know, the pussy. And just the <laughs> sheer intensity of the penetration and that connection and that tantric uh -huh. thing, you know? And she definitely had that going on. And I was just completely, you know, to say penetration, it's more like I was in the Venus flytrap. You know, I really was. Right. And damn me if I wasn't 
glad to be there. And so I'm doing her from behind. She had a really just great ass in my view, just exactly what I imagine, you know, which is another reason why she had such power over me. It was like right out of my my brain and the groin of my brain. But she starts talking at first in that just absolutely lucid, uh, psychotic way about mm -hmm. her sexcapades with other men. Okay. And I, I'm not at all surprised by that. I'm not... That doesn't really... Because some of it just could be her just making up stuff to get me more wound up. But right. then she seamlessly... And her voice was like her vaginal grip. There was a quality to the voice. And I'm very susceptible to women's voices. That's one of my number one things. Just that level of, of attraction. All of the women I've really, really fallen for have enormously distinctive and I think mesmerizing voices. Well, she seamlessly starts describing the people that she's murdered. Men, women, and then an extended breakdown description of a child she strangled at a daycare center with craft yarn. Right? Mm. So Good. suddenly, talk about cognitive and genital and psychological dissonance. Hot, wet sex of this Venus flytrap, all including kind of just devouring kind, and then this litany of serial killing. Hmm. And I was just absolutely so staggered. So at climax, I just couldn't even touch her anymore and I mm -hmm. managed to like drag on my clothes barely and I stagger out of this motel into blinding noon sunlight and U-Haul trailers are driving by and UPS trucks and all of re normal reality is, is you know there and I'm just panting with inability to sort of connect this world of, of you know, uh, a poster for a fun run or the silver Buick Electro with dual duels parked outside. And there's a diner that looks like a giant lunchbox immediately across from the motel. And there's a sign advertising blueberry cream pie. And all I can do is think about the wet tightness and then mm -hmm. the picture in my mind of a little boy being strangled with yellow craft yarn. And I think there's no way, there's no way to ever put those pieces of the puzzle together. It can't be done. Mm -hmm. It's time mm -hmm. to wake up. 